God loves a good party. I'm honestly confused. I'm confused how Christians have become so boring. I'm confused how Christians get the reputation as the party poopers, how how you almost come to church expecting to be bored in church because none of that reflects the nature of God. Like when you look at the life of Jesus on this planet, he's very clear. He said, I am only about my father's business. I can only do what the father told me to do. That's That's the thing he came to earth to do. He's doing the father's will. And one of the places we most often find Jesus doing the father's will is at a bunch of parties. In fact, he's, he's actually at parties so often that uh, there were with so many different types of people that he's actually accused by the religious leaders who were, by the way, boring. Um, he's actually accused by the religious leaders of being a glutton and a drunkard because he's just at parties with people all the time. Jesus loved a good party. His first miracle, he turned water into wine at a wedding. They, they run out of a wine for the party and Jesus' mom asked him to help, and he has them bring in these stone barrels that are meant for ceremonial washing, and he has them fill these ceremonial washing barrels with water and then turns that water in those barrels into the best wine, knowing, by the way, that one day water, that, that wine would symbolize his blood shed for our sins, which would truly wash away our sins. So you could say about this moment that Jesus was quite literally the life of that party. He loves a good party. Well, today is the first Sunday of Advent, the season of anticipation. And every year we talk about how Advent does mean anticipation. It's meant to be this, this uh, you know, season where we're, we're getting ready, the planning for a great party. And what we're anticipating is the celebration of Christ at Christmas. And here we celebrate that through our Christmas Eve services where we throw a party and we commemorate Christ's birth. And this might actually be why Christmas parties are the best. You know Christmas parties are the best, right? If you know our family, we're a little bit nuts about Christmas. uh, And uh, so don't get on me about when is appropriate for the Christmas tree to go up or when it's too early. to Just stop. Just stop. It means nothing to me. Get behind me, Satan. You are trapped for me. Uh, You are speaking things from a human point of view, not from God's. Okay. So just get behind me. But seriously, uh, there's something about Christmas. There's something about Christmas parties and and this time of year, all cultures, all religions seem to be drawn to this celebration. And most people celebrating Christmas, as you know, are missing the point. They don't even know what they're fully celebrating. And yet they just can't help themselves. They're just, they're drawn into the season. And truthfully, why shouldn't they be? Doesn't God throw the best parties? But as we sit here on the first Sunday of Advent, let me ask you a question. As someone who's in a church today at the beginning of Advent, do you know what this party is all about? Now, I mean, yes, it's about Jesus. We know the answer. He's the one who put the Christ in Christmas. We get it. We got that. But I often wonder if we truly understand, if we truly know what this party is all about or just how long God has been planning for this party. So how many of you um, host a big Christmas party every year. Maybe you are now because you're gonna do Christmas party in a box, but how many of you host a big Christmas party every year? You invite the neighbors, you invite the friends, you do all that. There's a ton of work. If you, under, if you host these things, you know there's a ton of work that goes into a great Christmas party. There's a lot of key decisions to be made. The soundtrack, you know, gotta have the right Christmas soundtrack. The menu, you know, are we playing games and what are those games? Are we watching a, mo- a Christmas movie? And if so, what movie? 
Uh, what's the dress code? You know, uh, are we doing presents or not? Are they good presents or are they the white elephant kind? You know, but more important than any of those decisions maybe is the invitation. Because if you don't have a good invitation, people aren't going to show up. So you got to have a great invitation telling people, here's how you RSVP, how, here's how you come to the party. Uh, so I did a quick Google search for some fun invitations. Here's some of my favorites. Uh, I like this one. It said, eat, drink, and be ugly. You're invited to our ugly sweater party. And, that, and I qualify for that one. So that one seems like a good party to me to go to. Uh, number two, oh, snap, you're invited. Now, that's funny because he's a cookie and his legs. Uh, oh, snap, his leg is snapped. So, oh, snap, you're invited to a Christmas party. I like that one. Number three, get ready for uh, the, some foot stomping at the McHenry's White Trash Christmas Bash. Don't you just want to go to a white trash Christmas bash? I mean, that sounds like a party I want to go to. But my favorite is this one. All will not be calm because it's a freaking party. Like that's like the best invitation to Christmas ever, okay? Well, today we're going to look at God's Christmas party preparations and his invitations. But God's invites look a bit different than the ones we just saw. He sent invites early and he sent them often using special messengers known as the prophets. See, one of the most amazing things about Christianity and one of the most amazing things about the Bible and about the Holy Scriptures, it's just the sheer amount of evidence proving that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is who he claimed to be. Hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Christ, God began sending prophets from Moses to Malachi all the way through the Old Testament. There's so much evidence that points to the Messiah that it's actually hard to believe that when he came, the people didn't see him coming. When in reality, it's still like that today, isn't it? Even in a world that celebrates Christmas, and I mean celebrates Christmas, despite all the evidence we see every single December and November and part of October, despite churches everywhere telling the story, despite celebrating a holiday that literally has Christ in the name, we still manage to miss it or worse, refuse to see what's right in front of us. So for hundreds of years, God has been sending prophets to announce the Messiah and literally describing everything about it, the world he would live in. Uh, there were prophecies about how he would be a prophet, priest, and a king, about how and where he would minister, about where he would live, that he would perform miracles, that he would still be rejected. There's prophecies about how he would die in very specific detail, made 700 years before it ever happened. And as we're going to dive into in greater detail today, there's all kinds of prophecies about his birth, where he would be born, and, and all the things around this, because God sent his invites early and often. Just to give you an example, for my chart people, this is a chart showing Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in the New Testament. You can trace the line to where it was fulfilled in the New Testament. That's absolutely overwhelming. Some of you are like, I don't understand charts. So here's a rainbow chart, a rainbow graph you might like better from Old Testament to much clearer, right? They're, they're just, it's so overwhelming. And every one of these have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? And nowhere do we see more prophecy fulfilled than at Christmas, where we look at the story of Jesus' birth. So turn with me to Matthew chapter one. Uh, if you're using one of our Bibles, we'll be on page 577. If you didn't bring a Bible, just raise your hand. The ushers would love to bring you one. It's our gift to you. Uh, Merry Christmas. You can just have that. Uh, and we want to make sure you have God's word in your life. But Matthew 1, page 577. I want to dive into this familiar Christmas passage. Uh, if, if you grew up around church or near church or going to Christmas Eve services and things, you've heard a lot of these a lot of times. But what I want to do as we read through this together, I want to attach 
each moment of Jesus' birth story with the actual Old Testament prophecy it's fulfilling. And, and we're not gonna do as many as are on that chart. We'd be here a really long time. Uh, we're gonna do just a few. When you think of Christmas, you may not think of prophecy, but at every moment, a prophecy is being fulfilled. Like in everything, a prophecy, the story is packed with prophecy. God was the ultimate party planner, if you will. And I want uh, you to see the lengths that he went to in order to get you and me to see Jesus, in order to invite you to the party he wants to throw for you. And only then can I tell you what this is really all about. Now, Christmas is all over the Old Testament, okay? At every turn, Jesus is fulfilling prophecies. These prophecies were made over a period of thousands of years, and Matthew is one of two places you find Jesus' birth story. Uh, The other part is found in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I want to start with Matthew's account of the birth story because Matthew is writing specifically to a Jewish audience. In other words, he's writing to the group of people who would have known the prophecies. He's writing to the group of people who were waiting for the Messiah. And he's writing to provide them with evidence that Jesus actually is fulfilling these prophecies and that Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting for. So let's jump into Matthew chapter one, starting with verse one. It says this, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Uh, Matthew starts with Jesus' genealogy. Now, I'm not gonna go through verses two through 16, partly because of time and partly because we did a whole message on his genealogy last year. You can go check it out online. Uh, But if you were to go through the whole genealogy on your own, you'd probably come across some names that if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you might recognize none more than Abraham, the father of all nations and the the man that God made a covenant with originally. And then you run over the name of King David, the man after God's own heart. God promised David that salvation would come through his line, that one of his descendants would be the Messiah, that the salvation would come through his people. And this genealogy is actually the first fulfillment of prophecy. The number one thing prophecy we see is the genealogy of Jesus. See, Matthew's gospel account is written to the Jews and they were huge on genealogy. Now, Matthew's a tax collector, so his job is to record information, and he clearly used that skill to to lay out the genealogy of Jesus, and by doing this, he's just uh, proving to them and to us that Jesus met all the requirements foretold about the Messiah. To us, it's not, you know, to us, it's just a list of hard-to-pronounce names, but to the Jewish people, it was evidence. There are lots of prophecies out there about the lineage of the Messiah. Look at just one of them. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 says, "'For a time is coming,' says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line, he will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. And, and, and that's fulfilled in Jesus. From the very first line of Matthew, we see prophecy, the first prophecy being fulfilled. And I want you to know, we haven't even talked about his birth yet. He's fulfilling prophecies before he's born. Every Jew knew these prophecies. Every Jew would have seen this and would have watched the life and ministry of Jesus and would have been wondering, is he really... Is he the Messiah? It seems to me like he's, he's fulfilling a lot of these prophecies. And by starting the gospel this way, Matthew is effectively saying, hey, Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies. Watch. And he goes on to prove it. So let's keep reading. Verse 16. He says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who's called the Messiah. Now, I want you to notice, <clears throat> it's, it, Matthew doesn't say, Joseph, Jesus' father. He says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, 
Jesus was born to Mary. Matthew's clear here. Joseph is not the physical son, uh, the physical uh, father of Jesus, but Mary married Joseph, which means that Jesus became part of Joseph's lineage, and therefore Jesus became a descendant of King David, being sure to fulfill yet another prophecy. And this is important because the second prophecy is the virgin birth, okay? Now, let's read this very familiar passage from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 23. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message or prophecy through this prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, she'll give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So Matthew doesn't tell us a lot about the birth of Jesus himself. Luke goes into much more detail on that account, but Matthew focuses on where Jesus came from. And he tells the story through the eyes of Joseph. And I want to point out a few implications from the passage. First, I don't know if you know how babies are made. Not this way, right? This is not how it, it works. Virgins don't usually give birth. That's kind of the point. There was difficulty to believe this then as much so as there is now. And so Mary's claim of a virgin birth would have brought about skepticism. And Joseph has his fair share of skepticism and you can't blame, blame him because Joseph knows the baby's not his, okay? Uh, while they were betrothed, she stayed at her parents' home and there was no intimacy allowed between them during that Jewish betrothal, which had lasted for one year. So when I say he knew it wasn't his, I mean he knew it wasn't his. And if it isn't his, he knows it's someone's because that's how babies work. They're not no one's, they're someone's. Babies don't come from nowhere, they come from somewhere. Now, what would it take you to be convinced that your wife had a baby as a virgin? I'll tell you what it would take, probably an angel, right? It takes an angel in a dream not so much to convince him as to remind him of the prophecy about the Messiah and to help him wrap his brain around the reality that somewhere out there, this, you know, somehow this baby came from God himself. And that leads to the second thing I want you to note. The passage says Joseph was a righteous man. What that tells us is that Joseph would have known God's word. He would have known God's law. He would have known all the prophecies about the Messiah. So when he had his dream, the angel was in essence saying to him, hey, Mary is pregnant and you already know who the baby is. The prophecy about the virgin birth, that's Mary. That's happening right now to you. It was a prophecy found in the book of Isaiah written 700 years before this moment. And here's what it says. All right, then the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child She'll give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And he says, Joseph, that's what's happening right now to you. You want to talk about a reason to celebrate. Now, one of the main reasons we celebrate at Christmas is because this idea of the incarnation or God 
taking flesh, God coming down to us in Jesus. It's this idea of God with us. But it's not just how he came down that proves he's the Messiah. It was also prophesied where he, specifically where he would be born. And that's our third prophecy, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Let's keep reading Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his stars at rose, and we've come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? So a, a little history here. Herod is not a Jew, but he was report, uh, appointed by the Roman emperor to rule this area. He was known as Herod the Great. Uh, he was a non-Jew overseeing a Jewish area, and he was ruthless and incredibly powerful. He eliminated any threat to his throne. Suddenly, these magi, these, these astrologers show up looking for a new king of the Jews, and the messianic prophecies were so well known that while he didn't know exactly what they said, he remembered that the Jews had some prophecy about a Messiah. And so he calls in the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders and the priests. And in verse four, he said, hey, where does the prophecy say the Messiah will be born? And of course, the priests and religious leaders know the answer. And so we read this in verse five. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you, who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Now, Bethlehem was a small village about five miles south of Jerusalem. And by sending his son to Bethlehem, God is painting a picture that his son would not be a king in the way we think about kings. But not only that, Bethlehem was the hometown of King David. And every Jew knew the Messiah would be born in this town. In John chapter seven, verse 42, we read this. For the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David, in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. Now, the reason every Jew knew this was because there had been a prophecy. Actually, there, there are two prophecies fulfilled by the Bethlehem birth. The first was when the Magi followed the star. Back in Numbers 24, there was a prophecy about the Messiah. It said this, I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but far in the distant future, a star will rise from Jacob or from Israel. A scepter will emerge from Israel. So the Magi are not Jews, but they are astrologers. And when they see a new star appear in the sky, they started doing some digging. And they found this Jewish prophecy referring to a Messiah, a star, which they determined must refer to a new Jewish king. So they followed the star to Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews. And they asked Herod, where the king is supposed to be born. And that leads them to the prophecy every Jew knew about Bethlehem, which was found in Micah chapter five, verse two. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in distant past will come to you on my behalf. Well, sure enough, the Magi head to Bethlehem, they find the child, and they find the fulfillment of this prophecy, thanks to Herod. And this isn't the last time Herod will actually help in fulfilling prophecies about the Messiah. See, Herod didn't care about the prophecies at all. He saw Jesus as a threat to be eliminated. So we keep reading in Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 7. <clears throat> then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem, search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so I can go and worship him too. 
After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they'd seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So Herod should have seen what was happening, but he's so consumed with power and control, he doesn't see the Messiah, he just sees a threat. And he sets out to eliminate that threat from the planet, which actually leads to the fulfillment of two more prophecies. Prophecy number four is that the Messiah would be called out of Egypt. Now, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. How could he be called out of Egypt? That's where Herod actually helps the process. Matthew 2, verse 13. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. So Herod is the one who actually forced them to flee to Egypt and eventually they would leave Egypt to go to Nazareth, the town where Jesus would grow up, and the Messiah would be called out of Egypt. This was prophesied in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. Now, this passage actually has a dual meaning and a purpose. This is something we see a lot in the Old Testament. It refers to Israel's rescue from slavery in Egypt, but it also refers to the Messiah who would eventually set them free from their sins. And this led to the fulfillment of the most heartbreaking prophecy, weeping for the children. In verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2, it says, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Now, I want to point out something. These are prophecies of what would come, that God, things that God knew would happen that he allowed that broke his heart. These are signposts he knew would happen, fulfilled through the birth of his son, Jesus. Herod, in his anger and fear, tried to eliminate Jesus. And Jeremiah, who's known to the weeping prophet, is the one who foretold it. Now, where am I going with all these prophecies? You can hear all these prophecies and you can go, wow, that, I'm overwhelmed. There's so many of them. And that's kind of the point. But where am I going with all this? I told you early on, God reached out to us early and often. You saw the charts. These are just a handful of the prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. God went out of his way to make it plain to us. He went out of his way to invite us. But I ask you a question. Do you know what the party is all about? Most say, well, yeah, duh, Jesus, right? Christmas is about Christ. There's no, no Christmas without Christ. And that's true. Uh, that's the right answer from a human perspective. But here's a question I want to ask you as we jump into this series. What's the party about from God's perspective? You ever thought about that? Why did God send all those prophets over thousands of years with a message about the Messiah? Why did God send his son to earth? Why was Jesus born in the first place? 
When we throw a Christmas party, we're celebrating Jesus coming to earth, but when God throws a party, that's not what he's celebrating. He's celebrating something else. Here's what you have to understand about Christmas. From God's perspective, the party is for you and me. From God's perspective, the party is for you and me. Humanity was created to be in a relationship with God and Adam and Eve broke that relationship through sin. And everything since that moment has been about restoring that relationship and about welcoming us back into God's family. And we read in John three sixteen, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Over in Luke 15, verse 10, we read this. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one, when even one sinner repents. What you need to understand about Christmas is the party God is preparing for is for you. The birth of the Messiah is the foundation of our salvation. Without Jesus' birth, he could not have gone to the cross to die for our sins. Without his death in our place, there could be no forgiveness. From the very beginning, God has been doing all of it for you. Every single prophecy was about helping you see Jesus. Every single prophecy was to help you see Jesus. These prophecies are your invitation to the kingdom, and there are hundreds of them, which means this party is for you. God has been inviting you early and often. He's made it so clear in his word. All of scripture from beginning to end points to Jesus as our way back of God, because all of heaven is longing for you to find your way home. All of heaven throws a party every time someone finds their way back to the arms of our heavenly father. The party God has been planning literally for eternity is for you. We read in Revelation chapter 13, verse eight, which talks about the end of time. It says the lamb, that's Jesus, was slaughtered before the world was made. In other words, before God made you, he knew Christ would have to redeem you. Our salvation, your salvation, is something God has been planning for a very long time. You could say it this way, God has loved you for eternity. And Christmas, every year, is the visible demonstration of God's love for you. The cross is the price Christ paid to redeem you and the party God has been planning since time began is for each and every person who finds their way home, which means it's for you. See, the anticipation of Advent from the perspective of heaven is driven by God's longing to see you find your way to him. God is dying to throw a salvation party for you. Will you accept the invitation?